you for persevering. It has been a full week, Monday, Tuesday, tonight, and I gather there are some who are really looking forward to having a meeting tomorrow night. <laughs> well, I think the meeting tomorrow night is true. I'm not sure about the looking forward. The reason that I find, uh, I, I'm very grateful to be asked to have done this, because I find the disciples that we've been looking at are, they're like us. And if we, as it were, enter into the story, if we treat the New Testament a bit like the archers, we begin to identify these characters and we see things in them that are like us. And that's interesting. But the real value, the, for me, is I, what I'm interested really in is seeing how Jesus treats them. Because they are like mirrors showing us Jesus afresh in a new light. And that, if we go out of here having a fresh insight of Cleopas, that'll be grand, as they say in Yorkshire. But if we've seen something fresh about Jesus, that'll be grander. Because it is he we're, we're serving and calling. And I was trying to work out how we characterise them. Well, Peter's obvious. We know, we know Peter's character. We, we found out the tax collectors are people who are you know, right on the edge. We know the women who figured much larger than society thought they should have done, but Jesus didn't. He thought they were properly there and even was bankrolled by them in, the tra- in their travelling. Well, tonight we're looking at Cleophas. And I think Cleophas is a disappointed disciple. And just look at the way Jesus interacts with this disappointed disciple. Uh, See what you think. As you know, all interpretations are just what we offer, and then you have to make, does this make sense? Does Does it respect the text? Does it speak to me? Does it fit the bigger picture? And so I offer it like that. Well now, Cleopas, the benefit of hindsight. If we turn to Luke 24... We're going to look at 13 down to um, 35. That's the whole of the road to Emmaus and the supper to Emmaus. But it then neatly divides into two. It divides on on the journey to Emmaus and then supper at Emmaus. And and it breaks at uh, 28, verse 28. So I wonder if there there were two people who'd be happy, just to give a change of voice, you understand, uh, for your sake more than mine, um, would be happy to read. And if you would, that'd be lovely. If you would come up and do it with the microphone, then we can all hear. Yes, thank you. Number one, so somebody from over here. Yes, please. Number two. Do you want to just come out to the front and do it here? So, um, would you like to do one, uh, thirteen to twenty-seven? Yes, fine. And then twenty-eight to thirty-five. Luke chapter twenty-four. On the road to Emmaus, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers 
delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognised by them, and when he broke the bread. Well, just to get into the mood, if we look at some pictures and see how you think the pictures reflect what's going on here. Um, if we start with the first picture, this is um, painted by a man called uh, Robert Zund, who was a Christian, but he was actually a naturalist, and he was painting in the, in, toward the end of the 19th century. He was really interested in, in, in rural idylls and, and lovely flora and fauna, and he tried never to paint pictures with buildings in them. So he really loved nature. And uh, so that's his, his picture of the road to maze. What, what, what do you think? What's, what do you notice? Uh, yes, the, the, the trees are definitely nor <laughs> northern European. He, he, was, he, he was a Swiss artist who, who, spent, who studied in Paris, but he's uh, not, not far off. Deep in conversation, yep. Jesus was, um, they weren't able to recognise him. I'm not sure why, but he's looking quite normal Jesus now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, he's looking like Austin thinks Jesus looks like. Thank you. <laughs> from all the other pictures. <laughs> from all the other pictures of Jesus you, you studied. Anybody, anything over the side? No, it's, 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 it was a couple of hours' walk, so it could have been late afternoon. That would be all right. 
what, what struck me, there are two things that struck me, about, apart from the fact that those are European trees. Um, he apparently was known as a great tree painter. You'd be glad to know that. Was the proportions. Do you see, when you paint a picture, where is the attention really going? It is actually on the trees. And the figures are quite small. It's almost as if the setting is more important than, than the, the, the figures just there who are walking along. And the other thing that struck me was it, I, I, it doesn't convey to me a sense of sadness in those two. They could have just been out for a chat. Now, that's purely personal. I don't know whether you, it occurred to you. They may have been quite sad. It was difficult to see from it looked that close. Well, well, let's try. Yes? No, you can't. Mm. No? I think I've always imagined um, the two people together and then Jesus coming in from one side. Yes. So Jesus being in the middle seems okay. unusual for me. Well, that's a purely person. Exactly, that's what we have. All of us have these mental pictures yeah. and none of them are exactly the same. Well, let's try the next... Ah, now. Uh, I think I said before, there are one or two people here who feel that these great pictures... They all represent a period in history which is not our own. So, uh, do, do any of you remember a thing called the Manchester Passion? It was, the, it was the telling of the story of the Passion from Manchester, from different points around Manchester. And the BBC saw that, and, and the, uh, the controller of BBC once commissioned on the back of that a series called The Passion. Four se- um, episodes which were filmed in, I think it was in 2000, it's 2008. And uh, here that they went out to, uh, they did their research, they worked out the storyline, and they went to, funnily because there's so much in, in, in Palestine that's um, developed now, they went and filmed much of it in Morocco. Uh, so this is the road to Emmaus there. What, what strikes you about this? It's more realistic. Sorry? It's more realistic. It is. It is. It's much more sort of um, a, a, the warm sort of climate, you imagine, and, and topography of the terrain, the terrain of, um, of Israel, isn't it? Yeah? Thank you. You can't tell who it is. You're right. But actually, it is. It's the chap on the right who has the white shawl. Um, and, and, and the, there's a clip on YouTube, um, and if you want to go look it up, it, it's quite interesting because they're walking on, and they're saying things like, you know, oh, I don't know, that Jesus, you know. And then he turns up and says, who are you talking about? And they turn around and they say, and, he, and then they say uh, things like, well, you know, he said that. And he looked straight at them and he says, you don't believe the scriptures, do you? And they go, I like this. It's, it's very well done. Um, all right. I think uh, it, was, it was broadcast, I think, uh, over, the, over the Easter period. Well, now, here is a, is a different picture. Again, the road scene, the road to Emmaus. The next slide, slide one, two, three. And this is painted by an artist who says, I set out to paint what you cannot see. What strikes you about that? 
Dusk, yeah, the sun's going down. So they're getting near to a mess. Yes, so they are a bit sort of like that, yes. Yes, yeah. The way the lighting works, it, it, it is. They're quite small figures, aren't they, in a big landscape. It feels like there's a lot of movement, that something is happening because of the brushstrokes. So it's, it, it's not static, it's moving. It's, it's a, yes, it's a dynamics of picture, yes. Okay, these are just the way people interact with this story. And, they, and these guys, they put it in, uh, in paint on canvas. For me, and I don't know whether this is true, um, what I thought, having seen that, was here we've got the three figures on the road to Emmaus, but all those colours, there's some green down here with them, are the colours of the rainbow. And in the Old Testament, the rainbow was the sign of God's prom covenant promise that never again would there be a flood and never again would the people be sort of... Uh, wiped out like that. Here, and I just don't, I don't know, but perhaps you could email him and ask, because he's he's, he, he writes, uh, he's still painting today. Um, whether something of that was in the back of his mind? And so it is mood. So you can see what he means. It isn't, it isn't meant to be a photograph kind of portrait. It's a sort of a, a, a feeling of mood of what's going on. Yeah. Well, those are three pictures of the road to Emmaus. What about the pictures of having supper at Emmaus. Now, I have to say, uh, there are hundreds of pictures of the supper, Jesus having supper, uh, road to Emmaus, uh, in Emmaus with the two disciples. And this is one of the best one, best known ones, uh, painted by Caravaggio in 1601. What strikes you about that? There's quite a lot to... S very... Intent. Yes. There are four. Yes, there's the innkeeper. It's an inn, and he's bring. He's serving them. He's bringing the. I think the wine or something. All eyes on him. Yes. Yeah, the chap on the left. He looks if he's in shock. And he's, uh, he's leaping back, pulling his chair away, about to stand up or something. He said, what? That sort of surprise. <laughs> the one on the right is <laughs> expressing something. Thank you, well, the, the, these are the things that, that I, I, I noticed, because I've, I've had longer to look at it than you. The first is, this is the moment, because in the story, they sat down for supper, Jesus broke the bread, and when they said, it's you, what happens next? Jesus goes. He's only there, up to the point at which they recognize him, and then he's gone. So this catches the moment just before Jesus goes. And it, it, it's, it's like a split second. A moment or two later, they'll just be there on their own thinking, deary me. And the sense of it being just that moment is this man coming back out of his chair. He looks really shocked. I mean, look, if you look at his face, he, 
I don't know if he's backing away in fear or wondering what is going on. And the way it's painted and arranged is that it's almost as if we have a place at that table. Do you see? There's a space here. And if you look even more carefully, there's a bowl of fruit teetering on the edge, about to fall into our lap. And the same with the hand of the chap who's, who was measuring his fish, according to somebody. Um, what he's actually doing, he's, making, he's including the viewer in. A lot of portraits, you watch them and they happen over there. Caravaggio is, in, is saying, this is what it's like for you. Uh, and he's opening up the picture. It's almost as if, well, draw up your chair, sit in, listen. We've been included in it. Well, that's now in the, uh, the National Gallery in London, if you ever get down there, and, and that kind of thing interests you. Um, it was painted in a period when the Reformation had just really taken hold, and the Roman Catholic Church was concerned that the Protestant Reformation, where people were finding personal faith in Christ, people were turning in hundreds and thousands. Uh, Luther and Calvin, there were two great sweeps of these uh, reform movements. And the Counter-Reformation, when the Roman Catholic Church said there are things in the church which do need to be sorted out, and they, and they, they got rid of a lot of the abuse. Um, they, it was a very conservative. It was all happened at a, a council called the Council of Trent. And one of the things the Council of Trent said was, we need simple pictures of faith that people can look at and understand what their saviour is like. And this was painted in exactly that period. So the, the Catholic uh, priests of those days were thought that's just what the people in the street need to see afresh Jesus. So that, that was great. Some of the more so snooty artists said, these look like ordinary people. <laughs> Caravaggio said, yes, they are. In fact, some of his models were people who found drunk on the side of the road. He said, do you want to... Oh, I'll come and model for you for a bit. And he painted them. And then Caravaggio... Well, outstanding. Caravaggio influenced a number of people, uh, and one of them is, is the, the last of the pictures for tonight is uh, Rembrandt. Uh, that's slide six. This is just a little bit later on. Pilgrims at Emmaus. Any comments? Not much food in the Just the breaking of the bread, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, and there's more food coming. The servants bring it. Oh, isn't it funny how they all, the, kind of the, um, the classical painters seem to think it was in an inn. It doesn't say that. We don't, it might even be that Cleopas lived at Emmaus, we don't know. But there's food coming. The way you've got the arch, it looks like a shrine in a, a church. Yes. It's deliberately used the kind of architecture of church building, a basilica over the top, to locate this in, inside the church. That wouldn't have been like that to call it. It would have been an inn if it was an inn. And so Rembrandt is saying, you will meet Christ and you, and you have a good chance of doing that in the church. Yes. We're not involved in quite the same way. And Jesus is a bit more on a pedestal, if you see what I mean. Do you see the kind of the rays and things? And even Cleopas, well, he's being pensive. He's having to think about it. Is this really true? Well, those, I hope that gets your imagination going. Um, let's now look at the passage a little more closely. So, what are we going to do? The next slide just summarizes it for us. Uh, 
We're going to do our literary homework as normal. We're going to look at our cultural studies. Then we're going to look at this story in two steps. The first step is looking at the walk to Emmaus, which we'll do together. The second is in the groups, where we'll look at the supper at Emmaus. And then we'll come back together to share. So if we now look at Luke's Gospel, this is the most familiar slide. This has been in every one. In fact, I could cover that up and you should be I'm sure you can. Just You could draw it, couldn't you, if asked. Five sections. All of this, the, the, Luke, the story of Cleopas, happens in Luke chapter 24. That's the fifth section. It's quite a short section. It's only 24, uh, one chapter out of 24. If we look a bit more closely... Can we go to the next slide, uh, Mark? We'll see there that this is the, the content of chapter 24, and it breaks into four sections, 12 verses, 23 verses, 14 and 4. Now, there are a couple of things to say about that. Um, when you get to the end of a narr narrative or a story, um, what would you expect to happen? Something like a conclusion, yeah? Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, some of them they all live happily ever after. Or if you, if you read some modern things, exactly the reverse. But <laughs> Usually, in a story, all the threads that have been woven, it's a bit like conducting, all have got through to the end. Now it all comes together. If you have a whodunit, it's, um, it's clear that that's where you hope to identify who did it. And did you spot them and all that sort of thing. And some of you might remember, yeah, I think some of you are, uh, Tony Hancock, who did, he and, the, and his writers, Galton and, who's the other guy? Ray Galton and who's? Ray Simpson, thank you. Um, they got a 30-minute comedy out of him going to a library, taking out a whodunit, and what had happened? Somebody had torn out the last page. <laughs> it was terrible. And, he, and it's half an hour, <clears throat> except, because the ending is really important. It is, it is really important. And we're now looking at a story which gets the most coverage in that chapter right at the end of the Gospel. So this, in terms of the structure of the Gospel, this is really important. The second thing you can say about the ending is that you, 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 you look at it and you say, now how does this compare with where we began? Has this done what this book set out to do. Now, if you turn just quickly to Luke chapter 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may, be, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. This is why Luke was written. I have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus means the God lover, one who loves God. 
It's a, general, it's a general title for those who love God and would like to be really sure. And here it is. And the purpose is that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke is setting out an orderly account. He's put it together. He's arranged it. He's composed it so that we will be given, by the time we've read it, uh, increased certainty in our faith. Now Luke 24 does, treats Jesus rising from the dead and gives pride of place to the, ro- to the road to Emmaus. So does, do you think that's the case? Do, do you think that story helps for people who are not sure about whether Jesus really did rise from the dead? What's your view? That's what the aim is. That Cleophas is not just a character in the story, somebody who was, as I suggested earlier, a disappointed disciple. He is also everybody who's uncertain about, is this really, really true? And the answer is set out in that narrative. The beginning and the end are really important in literature. What happens in the middle? Well, it can go sort of anywhere. In, in music, Sir Malcolm Sargent once said, when you're conducting, he said, as long as you start together and as long as you finish together, they don't mind too much what goes on in between. So here we are at the end, the climax. Well, let's look a little more closely then. Um, what have we got here? We've got the contribution of narrative studies. If we turn to the next slide, Mark. The road to the Maus is one of the two longest narrative units in Luke's Gospel. There are two really long ones. The road to Emmaus and the parable of the prodigal son. So how do we interpret that? Well, what's happening is that Luke and his editorial team decided these were important enough to get, be given a lot of space in the gospel. They weren't summarised, like sometimes, they were given, they could breathe, the characters moved and spoke and so on. That suggests that they are really important. If you wanted to know what Luke's gospel is about, if you just knew those two passages, you'd be a long way on, on the way to get it. Luke would like to, to, to assure you, first of all, that God is like the God, the Father in the parable of the prodigal son. That is what God is really like. I don't care what you think he's like, and I don't care what your experience suggests he's like, says Luke. This is what he's like. Jesus told it. And all the other things are just expressions of that. That God is the God like the Father there. And the second thing he says, and Jesus is not like you think he is either. This is what Jesus is really like. Here he is. I'll tell you a story. And he does. So those two are deep. Um, when missionaries went to places in Africa, people used to, because they didn't have a whole gospel translated in their language, they would suddenly take a story or sometimes even a verse and they could live on that for ages. I remember one woman saying, um, you know, I, Jesus is my rock, which is the way she understood that passage. She said, that's fed me for a year. Can you imagine? Just coming back it again and again and again and again. You, what you got shade and the rock. So these two stories are just magnificent for Luke. They're so important. The first one, 
we, we, won't, we can't do it at length now, the pro- parable of the prodigal son is extraordinary because it actually takes what everybody thinks a good father is like and turns it upside down. You remember the story, don't you? He goes away, spends his money, comes back, he says, Father, I'm not worthy. And his father is doing what when he's on his way back? Do you remember? Right? Yeah, just before that. Yes, I'm trying to hurry this. I'm sorry. He sits, he's watching on the roof to see when his son's going back. And then he sees his son. And, he's, and, he, and he runs down the road to him, doesn't he? Remember? Now, what's striking about that? Yes, the, the, the father wouldn't have rushed around. True, and it goes a bit further than that. If you were the father, if you were the, the head of the household, you didn't move. You called people to you. You didn't go running to them, not especially to your children. It was the other way around. Uh, excuse me, just... So this father did the exact reverse. He went down the road and then embraced his son. Now... When Jesus told that story, it doesn't say clearly, but I suspect that the people in the crowd heard that and they said, Deary me, what a daft person. Dear, what's he playing at? The first thing, he was, he was stupid because he let him have his, his, his inheritance. And secondly, when he wasted it and came home, he went and hugged him. Well, imagine what the world would be like if everybody went round doing that. Nobody would learn anything, would they? And then to try and root it, if your daughter borrowed the car, she's 17 and a half, I'll be back mum by 11, and at 1 o'clock in the morning she comes in dishevelled and says, I'm awfully sorry, um, somehow we were singing as I was driving and this corner appeared out of nowhere and I'm afraid the car's now in a ditch and we had to walk the last bit. Now are you going to say, come in, dear. <laughs> Sit down. Can I get you something to eat? Oh, yes. The, the father in the prodigal son is a radical reimagining of what parenthood is like. It is extraordinary. And here, it's the same with Jesus, as we'll see. Well, uh, the second thing to say is that um, we've looked at the beginning of Theophilus. You'll notice that we, the reader, the we know that it's Jesus who comes near to them. But in the actual narrative, they didn't. Cleophas, it just said a traveller. Well, he tells us Jesus came, but they just think it's somebody on the road. And, and they, this person just turns up. And then, these are the sort of general introductory points where we do it in more detail. At the end of the gospel, the Rotomaeus leads into that sense of we are disciples for service. Jesus has something for us to do. Well, now let's look more closely and we'll, we'll look at that first bit, starting then at verse 13 and with the next slide. Ah, sorry, I beg your pardon. We, we need to just do a little bit more cultural studies. Um, that was the literary study, the, the cultural. In the first century, the first century town of Emmaus has disappeared. Um, the, the history of, of what all the changes in, in the Holy Land uh, explain it. Um, 
And there are now four possibilities, and the one that is the red dot on the map, which is about to appear, um, will show you that. So if we just go to the, straight to the next slide, Mark. There's Jerusalem. There's Emmaus. Um, the word Emmaus means a place of warm water, so warm springs. And there are several Emmauses. There are four there. Emmaus up, Emmaus in the middle, Emmaus off to the left, over to the west, and Emmaus uh, Mutsa near Jerusalem. And the only one that's got the right distance, that's the 60 stadia, the 6.8 miles, 7 miles, is the one in red. So, the, and, and that is the one that, that, although others have been tried, they've tried other ideas out, it's impossible to have gone the 19 miles to Emmaus and Nicopolis to walk that way and then turn around and walk back in the time. It, it just couldn't be done. So we are, we are generally confident that that is Emmaus, but it, the, the town is actually just a field now, and it's near to another town, um, and they've dug up one or two things, and the, I think scholars would say that's the one to be going for. Then the next slide shows you the fact that that road was actually a Roman road, and there are still remains there today with the, the stones along the edge and the paving that goes all the way from Jerusalem up to the coast on the west. So that's the road they would have been walking. Uh, and then the next slide shows you the maps that they now put into the Bibles, which we have today. So there's Jerusalem, and there's the road to the sea, and there is Emmaus. And then just to remind ourselves about discipleship, so go to the next slide. Remember we talked last time about how rabbis, from the rabbi's perspective, a rabbi would look at people wanting to be a disciple, interview them, question them, but choose a few, and would choose the best. From the disciple's point of view, if you wanted to be a disciple, this is what you were taking on. First, it was a response to God's call. Second, it meant giving up your present commitments so you could embrace new things. Third, it involved learning stuff. The rabbis had developed a way of interpreting scripture and it meant learning the way they did that. Fourthly, it meant being willing to be changed by the experience. And then fifthly, then to become an agent of transformation. Uh, you were meant, once you perfected your understanding of the rabbinic way of interpreting the scripture, you were then meant to go out and do the same again. And you became a rabbi and others then followed you. So the job of discipleship was quite a, sort of a serious step, really. It, it wasn't just, oh, I'll just tag along for a bit. There were crowds who tagged along, but those who wanted to be disciples had made a decision that they wanted to, to put their whole life into this. And I think that, that's helpful in the background when we come to look at Cleopas. Right, thank you. So then we go on to the next slide. And we have the, the text in front of you. Chapter 24, verse 13. Two of them were going down to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that happened, and as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus came up. These two disciples, why do I say the disciples? Well, look later on in the text. When they're explaining to Jesus their difficulty, in verse uh, 22... In addition, said Cleopas to Jesus, some of our women, our notice, women, amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
And some others went to the tomb, and they found it, the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. Cleopas and this other disciple were with the eleven that morning. They'd heard the women come back and say, Jesus, we've been told by the angels, Jesus is alive, and the tomb is empty. And they didn't believe them. Somebody else went to check and came back, but they didn't see Jesus. And they said, there you are, you see. We went to check. No. And so Cleopas at this point says, I think it's time to go home or set out. So that afternoon, they left the band, Eleven and the others, who were still working out what to do, and started on the journey home to Emmaus. And I think when it says there in verse uh, 17, they stood still, their faces downcast, they were downcast. My, my guess is that Cleopas wanted it to be true that Jesus was risen, but just didn't think it was true. Do you know that you, you hope against hope, but actually you've got that feeling in your heart of hearts, actually it's not true. And so he went home, started to go home, disappointed, downcast, sad, disillusioned. And so they're walking along, talking in that vein. They've left behind the others now. They're on the way back to Emmaus. And then along comes this traveller. Verse 17. What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. And then one of them named Cleopas said, asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And then he was a prophet and he starts telling them all about him. Now, I think they were genuinely upset and disappointed. And Jesus had drawn close to them in their upset and their disappointment but they hadn't recognised him. And in a respectful way, I think this is quite humorous, really, because what you've got is them saying, there's this man Jesus, and Jesus, whom they don't know is Jesus, says, uh, who's he? Well, he taught us he was going to be a... Did he? Yes, he did. And they're walking along, you see, and, and they say... Well, and we'd hoped, did you? But then this happened, and he said it's in the scriptures, but we don't think it is. Really? And so you get this kind of play, uh, and I think Luke, by telling us that it was Jesus, he's saying, listen, they were still uncertain. They couldn't see, but it really is true, O oh reader. Don't you see? Now, you may notice there's just a little bit there in verse 16. And I want to just take a moment to look at that. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, verse 16, but they were kept from recognising him. Did that make you stop and think? The convention of a pious Jew is you don't use God's name in everyday conversation. And the way you refer to God is you put what you say into the passive voice. It means you say, it happened that. And everybody knows you, what that means is God did it, but you're trying to respectfully say it without mentioning God's name. So when it says they were kept from recognising, something else did it to them, 
What Luke is saying is that God stopped them from recognizing Jesus. Now, isn't that a bit of a puzzle? Did anybody spot that or wonder about it? Yeah. Well, can I give you a little clue for tonight, and then uh, we can talk about it at length for another month or two, another time. Mm. Essentially, what we've got here are two intersecting perspectives, like lights on the same thing from different perspectives. We've got the perspective of Cleopas, and we've got the perspective of the divine, God's perspective. And it is God who is actually preventing Cleopas recognise Jesus. And it does seem a bit odd. But I think if we approach it like this, this might help. What we've got is we've got to recognise that in the interaction between God and people, you can never say everything in one sentence because there's so much to say. And from so many different perspectives at the same time, all these different spotlights coming onto the truth. Therefore, what we need to do is say what we can be said from one perspective and see if we can make it work. So I think from the perspective of Cleopas, God did prevent them recognising Jesus. Now, how can that be? Well, it's, it's because it goes like this. J just bear with me. And if this interests you, fine. I think what God was doing is doing what he does through the whole of Scripture. God is confirming what we choose, we decide. If you decide you want to believe in God, God will help you to believe in him. If you decide you don't want to believe in God, God will, help, will make sure you don't. Because God respects the decisions we take. So the first thing to say is that these men didn't believe that Jesus had risen. So God is saying, okay, then you'll live with it. He didn't rise, now just live with it. That's the first thing to say. The second to say is that all the time that that is true, God, as it were, confirming what we choose, he is also trying to win us and to woo us back to a bigger vision. And so in this story, what you've got is God saying, if that's what you think, so be it. Your choice, up to you. Live with it. On the other hand, you've got Jesus coming alongside saying, listen, I know you've made that choice. I know that's what you really think. And I'm now going to try and help you move out of that on until you see that actually I do, uh, I am alive. And in that way, what you find is that, that, that this, these verses about how we bring judgment on ourselves, it's true. The decisions we take are really, really important. And God does respect them. And he respects them by saying, let so be it. But that is not the last word, but it is at least a part of what's going on here. So they didn't recognize Jesus because they'd already decided in their heads that Jesus wasn't alive. It wasn't true. They wanted it to be true, but they thought in themselves, no, it isn't. And so when Jesus rocks up, um, I don't, even if they looked straight at him, they couldn't have seen it was Jesus. They had just, they were so convinced there was, there was no hope. And so God respects that 
by respecting that, he, he acknowledges it. He sees that that's where we are. And that's what I mean by, at the beginning, by saying, these were disappointed disciples. I don't know about you. Maybe you've had disappointments in your life of faith which have actually lowered your expectation. They've left you unable to explain things. And maybe it's come, something's come apart or not worked. And you don't know where to turn and you just feel you've been let down by God. And it can be any manner of things. And that shapes your expectancy and your trust in him. You still believe in your head, but actually you dare pray adventurously now because he he doesn't answer my prayers or whatever it is. So people who are disappointed with God and Cleopas was really disappointed. He wanted Jesus to be alive. But he didn't think he was. And the lovely thing about this is that God actually understands that. He respects it, he takes it seriously, but he said it's not the last word. I will come and I will help. And that's what Jesus does. He comes alongside Cleopas and leads him to a better place. So if you are a person for whom there is disappointment in your life, uh, Jesus can meet with you except that's exactly how you think and feel and reflect on things and lead you forward to a better place. And it begins by actually acknowledging that's where we are. And I have to say, I do meet a fair number of Christians who are disappointed in one way or another. And we can't, it's not easy to talk about it sometimes. You can't do it so publicly. I mean, it's, it's great to have testimonies of new Christians. I love it. I think it's just fabulous. But I do know that the Lord... The Lord he gives them an easy ride at the beginning when you knew. Didn't, didn't you find that? I used to lose the car. I was a Christian student in the Christian Union. And I was one of the few people who had a car because I was in the Air Force Reserve and they were paying, so it was nice. And so I had this car and uh, I used to go and get the Christian Union speaker. And I, I was forever losing the keys. I said, Jesus, where are the keys? Thank you. Pick, pick up. I went. It's just like that. Now, I say, where are the keys? And uh, you better have a look then, haven't you? <laughs> The Lord knows us and he takes us seriously as where we are. We don't need to pretend before God. That's the lovely thing. You can be completely frank. He already knows it. But in order for the relationship to work, you need to acknowledge it, to verbalize it with him. And that's what they did. And so he said, and he, uh, okay, I acknowledge, uh, Cleopas, that's where you are. Disappointed, fed up, going home, leaving the others. You, 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 you're bailing out, perhaps. And so Jesus comes along. And Jesus knows this. And we're going to see that in just a moment. Finally, when they get to there, having got to the point where they start talking, Jesus, verse 25, turns to them and says, How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Foolish because you didn't believe the evidence. These women and these who've been there and seen the empty tomb, you didn't believe it. And how slow to believe the scriptures. And then he goes on to explain about the Messiah having to suffer and so on. Now at this point, we're not told what impact that had on Cleopas. It's only later when the penny drops. Do you remember? He said, did not our hearts burn within us? As we were walking, this man was giving us hope again. We'd wanted, it was all over. And now, look, it could still be true. Hope was lifting. And they thought, 
he's, he's, he's good, this traveler. He, he, he knows what he's talking about. Certainly, he understands where we are. And then the traveler, they get to Emmaus. It's now uh, evening. Sets out to go forward, to, to carry on. Uh, verse 28. And then they turned, and Jesus, uh, and they urged him strongly, please, don't go. Please, stay with us. Uh, it's late. The day's almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. If Cleopas had not insisted, I'm confident Jesus would have just kept going. Cleopas really did want to get things sorted out. And when we come, I think, to the Lord with that kind of desire, he meets us. He doesn't necessarily answer the way we would like, but he is there for us. And so Jesus didn't go on. He said, okay, and he came in and stayed with them. It's good news. So that's how it looks from the point of Cleopas. If we now look at it for the next slide, what does this look like from Jesus' point of view when he was doing it? Well, he knows what's going on. He sees these disciples are downcast and he decides, I'm going to go to them and I'm going to help them. I'm going to walk with them. The fact for us today that Jesus is like that, I think, is great because it means that the, the problem that Cleopas had was not that Jesus was absent, is it? Because Jesus was there. The problem was that he couldn't see him. Yeah? And this, I think, is what Luke is saying. If you're a person who's a bit uncertain about your faith, God seems a long way away. He isn't. It just looks like it. And it only looks like it to you because that's where you are at this point in your life journey as a Christian. He's there, right with you, guaranteed. Okay, you can't see it. Sometimes you just have to trust for a bit, and then you will see it. Do you remember that um, was it a poem about these, Jesus walking along with somebody and then the four footsteps go into two? Yeah. And, he, and he says to the person, what happened there? And he said, I carried you. Do you remember? Well, there's a, there's a more scurrilous version. Is that uh, when they said, that, Lord, what happened there? Jesus said, well, we both hopped. <laughs> Jesus is there, whether you can see him or not. That's what Luke's trying to say. Clear pass, he's there. And we, the reader, can see it. We know it. Because at the moment, we are, we're seeing this from Jesus' point of view. From Cleopas' point of view, he's just talking to somebody. And I think sometimes it's like that. Jesus does speak, doesn't he? To you, if you found this, he will speak through an ordinary person. Now somebody say something and think, wow, that's just what I need at this moment. Each of us can be an angel, an angel as a messenger from God to somebody else. As long as we're prayerfully open to the Holy Spirit, we can say things which would be just right. I have to say as a preacher, many of the quite a few preachers here, I've given up trying to correct people at the door when they said it was very helpful when you said such and such. And I thought, I didn't. I promise you, I didn't even use any of those words. And I'm so grateful. I said, isn't it lovely that the Lord is helping? Yes, they say, and I think, snap, amen. <laughs> Jesus can use you and me to speak his word to people who are going through times of difficulty. Well, he talks to them, he, he corrects them. And as they receive correction, he then shows them how it all fits together. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't do a great Old Testament lesson. 
And the reason is that Luke is writing for Gentiles who don't know the Old Testament. No point. If this had been Matthew's version, Matthew would have put in lots more about how, for a Jew, this fits the Old Testament prophecies. As far as the Gentiles, all they need to know is it does fit. And it's there if you need to look. So no detail, just it's there. Ching, ching, ching. Right? Okay. Yes, Lord. Thank you. Let's go on. And then finally, as I said, Jesus seeks to go on until he's invited back. So he's giving two clear paths, the, the room to choose, the space to choose. The, the older I get, the more uh, impressed I am as the amount of space we are given to choose, make decisions. The Lord gives a huge amount of freedom, much more, I think, than we realise. And I sometimes think it's a bit scary. Um, and then, sometimes when you do make a poor decision, and Jesus said, well, I wouldn't have done that, but okay, if you want to do it, okay, we'll do it, let's try it. Then you think, help. But that's a whole other sermon. Right. So there we are. We've got as far as sitting at supper, and they've called for the food to be brought, and now it's your turn. Any comments so far before we go into groups? Fine. I'll take that as no, David. <laughs> so, would you like to just join in a group? Uh, if you're one of the beta groups and, and you want to stay as you were last time, that's fine. If you want to just join in a local group, that's fine. And in the leaflet... Can I say, please don't work through it all. Just use this as a guide. The question I'd like you to... to, to I put it here on the, in the inside. What, paragraph three. The, pur the purpose of the group session is this. What can help us listen in a way which allows us to hear the voice of Jesus, and here it is, and be reasonably sure that it is Jesus who addresses us? We'll never be 100% sure. If you aim for that, good night. But just sufficiently sure to say, okay, I'm willing to, to take a bet on it and say I'll, I'll act on it. And those there might help you as you have a little think. Great. Would you like to sort of divide up and then um, we'll come back in about half an hour. Thank you very much. Okay, shall we begin to move back toward where we once were? Where's Mike today? He's on holiday. Because there's somebody, he collects these for somebody, an old man, he said, who wanted... Well, if, if, if you want me to take one... Would I'll you? Pass it on to yes, me. give it to... Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's one or two there. But is, is there's in... One. Uh... Yeah.
Right, thank you very much. Welcome back. Uh, what struck you from your discussion? Uh, the bit that related to the passage, there was some really, I could overhear little bits of conversations going here and there, and some of them <laughs> had gone a fair way <laughs> here and there. Um, anything struck you from your group? Oh, we should do this, shouldn't we? Yes. Mark, is this, is this one on? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Now we can all hear you now. I didn't realise that they walked back to Jerusalem in the night after they had this revelation, really. Mm. Um, and as one of the other people said, it would have been very dangerous walking back at night, I would have thought, you know, but they must have been really wanting to rush and tell all the other people yeah. that it was true. Yeah. Uh, that's know. right. It's, it's a mark of how much they've been changed by meeting Jesus. Yeah. And they wanted to share it. And actually, having just walked, was it seven miles? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Then it's a fair way to walk at night. Yeah. It's not just down to the shops. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? <laughs> right. Thank you. Any other comments? Come on. It, only if you've got somebody... No, no, don't worry. You don't have to... We've got to pass the baton. Right. Thank you for the baton. <laughs> John. A couple of people in the group said how... Oh, right. A couple of people in the group mentioned how they had had moments when things suddenly became clear, like at the breaking of bread, and then things started to fit into place. Mm. Yep. There's something that just becomes the trigger. Yeah. And the Lord and it might uses be something that. quite every day. Yep. Yes. Can I just continue that idea? Because I think that came up in our group as well from the Carveggio. Um, that revelatory moment was the breaking of the bread, mm. where they realized it was a breaking of the bread, which, a breaking of Jesus' body. And we started to talk a little bit about the importance of communion and that relationship with God, that very, very special moment uh, where we're relating with God through the breaking of his bread and his body. And then we talked a little bit about communion, and sometimes it can be a bit robotic, other times it can be a bit special. Mm. And we then sort of talked a bit about that. Yes. And if you look in Luke, um, when you've got the story of, if you just go back, in Luke 24, you've actually got the order there. When Jesus, verse 30, 24, 30, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, and began to give it to them. And if you go back to the Last Supper, what you'll find there I'm just looking for it just now. 
2220, is it? Or no? 2239. 2239. 19, I think, isn't it? 19. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Pete, for the, for the help. Anyway. 2219. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. That four-fold action, that four steps. So it, it would certainly have evoked that. when we think they made the connection mm. because it was something that Jesus had done at the Last Supper. Yes, that's it. Yeah, thank you. We also wondered whether Jack actually seen the marks in his hands. Well, you did. Yeah. Well, I think I wasn't the only one, but was it actually saw his hands at the time he, he broke and gave it out? Yes. Up till then, he may not have seen the scars. Yes. Um, and whether they were in the, any of the paintings that we didn't think the, the scars showed on any of those. Well, well, good question to take on. Or whether any of the other ones, you said there were loads of them about oh, the are, actual yes. scene. There are some where the scars are there, yes. Yeah. On the hands and the feet. Thank you, yes. Well, now, what I was hoping was as we reflected on that supper there, it would give us some clues as to how do we recognise the presence of Jesus today in our experience. How do we know that what we sense or hear is from him? This phrase, did our hearts not strangely burn? Um, extraordinary. And, and maybe you've had that experience, that just somehow it is all just coming together and it's very special and uh, things start, the penny drops, things begin to add up, make sense. And is that of God, is it not? Is that Jesus speaking to you? Um, my vision of the church is that we're a community of the followers of Jesus. And the thing that we have in common is not our church, although APC is our church, it is Jesus. And first, that explains why there's such a variety here. I mean, there's some people here you wouldn't normally fraternise with, really, would you? I mean, <laughs> no names, thank you. Um, but it is that sense of Jesus, who's the living one. The, 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 do you remember in the first Christians, do you remember what the, their first creed was? The very earliest creed of all. Nearly. Just in English, it's three words. In Greek, it's two. Jesus is Lord. Kurios Jesus. That was it. And in the Greek, there's a tense called the present continuous. So if you want to get the nuances of what they were saying, what they were saying is, Jesus is the one who is reigning now. That's what it meant. It wasn't a belief. It was a description of an experience. You know, the creed, when you get to, I don't know, we don't do creeds much here, ABC, I've noticed that. <laughs> I haven't said a word. <laughs> but if you do do creeds, you'll find that it's very easy for them just to be a, a, a set of ideas you recite and are expected to give assent to. And sometimes they're a bit obscure, and other times they're a bit odd, and you don't really know what to do with them. 
if you've had that experience. And that's because we've, in the creedal formulas, we've reduced an experience to a set of ideas. Christianity is not a set of ideas in the first place. It is an experience of the living God encountered in Jesus. That's what we're offering to the world. Not a new set of ideas to have a debate about, but someone who, if you open your life to him, he will make a difference. That's the good news. Um, and that's what Jesus is, Jesus is Lord, was Jesus is reigning now. And, that, and if you met somebody, those first Christians, what they'd say is, I'm a follower of Jesus who's, who reigns now. Like Peter and John, remember when they, he's go, they're going up to the temple and they met this lame man at the gate and he was begging for money. Do you remember? And that, there's a chorus, but we won't go there. <laughs> so he asks for money and they say, we haven't got any money, but in the name of Jesus Christ, that's the one we're following, who's, who's alive and reigns now, get up and walk. And they lift him up and he starts to walk. And it's great. And if you follow it through, he then hugs them, which is a bit embarrassing. And, and they then continue on into the temple with this guy shouting, praise God, I'm healed. And they're saying, shh, you're in the temple now. But it's his temple. So he goes on. So here, when they're, they're talking, Cleopas is actually realizing that the Jesus who he thought was dead is alive. And, is, and Cleopas, if you follow it through to the end, is actually in that group of disciples whom Jesus addresses. They've gone back to Jerusalem. There's no record of them having left. They stay together until Jesus says they wait in Jerusalem until the power comes. Well, I think one of the great ways of, of helping discern whether God is speaking, um, if, I, if I could offer the next slide, um, uh, Mark, that would be, these are the things that struck me. The first was this. We, we can be sure that Jesus is present even when we don't recognize him, because that is what the scriptures say is the case. He is present in our experience through the Holy Spirit, and sometimes there are times when even communication with the Holy Spirit seems to have gone all flat and quiet. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is left, uh, but it actually is something we can say we know this to be true because it's part of the faith we've inherited. But then we can go on, we can have all kinds of ideas about how that looks and works, and ex- and what Jesus did, he explained to Cleophas as they walked on that road that our expectations have to be shaped by scripture. Otherwise, we could be all over the place with what we expect God to do or not. That prosperity gospel, you probably come across it. Those people who say, if you follow Christ, he will bless you and you'll be rich and you'll have a, a portion or that. And I, 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 I knew people in a church um, where they, they grew and grew and grew and they felt the prospect of and they and they had a, a night of prayer and at the end of it, they said, the, we believe the Lord has said that all our leaders should have Porsches and they went and bought them Porsches for all the leadership team. Now that was because they were trying to be honest to what they thought God was saying. I think that being the likelihood of God saying that is pretty remote. Or at least try to see how that fits within the, the, the picture of God we, and Jesus we get in the New Testament. So we can actually get, we can go down, we can go down byways unknowingly and unwittingly unless our expectations are really scriptural. And actually, I, I have to say, I think it's great to come to a church where you want to take the word, the scripture seriously. Because many churches are, have been reduced to just sermonettes. 15 minutes on Sunday and it comes out the lectionary. You're not quite sure how it leads off from last week sometimes. Um, and then, then some churches have the ambitious thing of trying to do New Testament, Gospel, Epistle, and Old Testament uh, in that uh, 15 minutes. 
Well, by the time you found them, the time's gone. <laughs> so we need to know the scriptures much, much better than we do. And then thirdly, our hearts burn within us, that inner witness. Isn't that lovely? That just, you just come, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you just know inside yourself that's happening. And you can't, you can't generate it, you can't program it, you just receive it when it comes and you say, thank you very much. And if that hasn't happened for you, then I would say you would be like a lot of Christians who have not explored all of our birthright. Every church tradition offers you something, but that something is never the totality of what Scripture says is our birthright. And so for some people, um, well, you can imagine it. It's an emphasis on this or an emphasis on that. And actually, it's, it's, it's bringing all this together. That, I mean, that's one of the nice things about this place, that it seems there are people coming from different traditions who've felt different things are important. Um, I haven't found anybody who thinks liturgy is important yet, but I'm sure there is one. <laughs> but that, that's something there. We want... Oh, good. Uh, we, if you haven't had that sense of the Holy Spirit speaking to you in a personal, direct, intimate way, it is there for you, where you just need to, as it were, find a way of entering into it. And I'm sure there are people here who could, could walk with you through that experience. And it is extraordinary the number of, of people in the church who haven't actually got that far. They believe the right things. They are dutiful in their attendance. They hold jobs in churches. Sometimes they're wardens. I mean, as serious as that. And yet they still haven't got to that intimacy, that delight, that just being part of the beloved of Jesus. It's there. It's our birthright. And then the breaking of the bread, as it was just talked about with Mark, that points to the communion. Not the Communions can be communions can be communions. I was a, a curate on a rough housing estate in London, and I felt that was part of why I was there. It was rough, and we're trying to live the Christian life with all these yobbos around. You know, the... They, they bumped off school, and because I was there during the day, thought amusing the vicar, as I was called, was what they were there for. So you'd be trying to um, prepare a sermon, and they'd be knocking on the front window or throwing stones at the doors and whatnot. And, and, and it was very difficult to know as a Christian what you did. I eventually did my preparation of sermons up on um, Wimbledon Common, away from everybody, because there was no peace in that flat. And it got so bad during one snowy season where we get snowballs and this window, that window, the other, that I went round, I did a flanking attack, and I caught one of them by the, the, only here, not him, his clothes. And I said, just let's go and talk to your mum. So I went in and talked to him, marched him up home, and she said the standard thing, he's never like that with us. <laughs> and I walked down, because there were tire blocks, and I looked up, the, and then I could see the silhouette and his older brother was there. He said, uh, I gathered afterwards, we're not having this. We're not having you bring the vicar around here saying we're causing trouble. And he was thumping. He was, and you could see the sh- it was, it was like these shadow things. Thump, boom. Um, um, well, so I can't remember where I started there. Oh, yes. It, and the, during that period, it was actually quite frightening and it was quite lonely because you're, you're there 24 hours a day uh, and... They all think it's a lark, and most other people are either at work or out doing stuff. And it wears you down. And it was actually going in and having communion services during the week where it was almost Jesus said, you're still part of the family. And the communion, it was only about three or four, it was a midweek thing. Um, that was the moment when he spoke to me and said, it's all right. 
We're in this together. Come and receive from me. So it can work in all kinds of ways. And I was grateful for that. Um, and finally, the confirmation of other prayerful Christians. I, it's lovely to have people who are prayerful and they want to hear from God and they know that most of us get it wrong most of the time, but we sometimes get it right and together we can reduce the chance of getting it wrong. It's lovely, isn't it? And I think it'd be great if we said at church, um, well, John's not back yet, um, if um, somebody says this is the vision from God, somebody says that, what are we going to do about it? And ask the church, say, well, here we are. In a kind of way, we are doing that. We're wanting to say, come on, you, you guys have been Christians for it young, so you should be able to listen to the Spirit and say what you think. That doesn't mean that you'll have it all or any of it, but it does mean we can together listen. And I think that's lovely. And I think that's one of the great things about having a congregation like APC, where you've got experience of years of walking with Christ. It's lovely to have beginners, but it's also lovely to have the old hands, really. Sorry, experienced hands. <laughs> so, there we are. Uh, one last thought and then we close. I hope that you found that in those of you who managed to get to uh, tonight and other nights, that these disciples have been a, a, a bridge for you into a refreshing of the picture of what Jesus is like. That Jesus thinks that you are his disciple and he thinks that's amazing. There's this lovely bit in John, which should be straight to John just for a moment, um, where Jesus said to the disciples, you know, you, you're not my servants, he said. You are my friends. And they looked at him. You're friends, says Jesus. And, and, and I tell my friends what I'm doing. And we have a conversation. That's our privilege, to be friends of Jesus. And friendship is given. Um, I always feel sorry for the kid who comes home and says, Mum, nobody's friends with me and nobody wants to play with me at playtime. Do you know, your heart goes out because you can't do anything. Yourself, you just pray for them and rev them up and send them back. Um, Jesus offers to us friendship, and friendship is grace, it's just bestowed on us. You're my friend. That to me is what this is all about. That in different ways, we've seen through these disciples the way Jesus showed them they were his friends too, whether they were like Peter, sort of you know, thinking before they not thinking probably, just acting before he thought. Whether like the women uncertain about coming forward, the tax collectors who didn't belong, uh, this chap, Cleophas, who was just disappointed. He'd hoped for so much and it had fallen apart. All these different things are, are windows on Jesus. And it's about transformation. So what I'd like to do is ask you tonight just to ask yourself two questions as a reflection and a prayer, and then we'll close. Uh, and the questions will now come up on the screen. Disciples are friends of Jesus. We are meant to be people who have been transformed by him. We've been in the business of personal transformation. And we are agents of transformation. So what I'd like to do is, is to say, first of all, would you like to just have, a, in our quietness now, ask the Lord, is there anything that he's been wanting to show you through tonight or other, other sessions where he wants you to trust him a bit more? to step out in faith, to allow yourself to be changed, to step away from your habit of saying, no, I can't, I couldn't possibly. And then secondly, 
he says to these, this crowd of disciples, you are my witnesses. And he says that to them and through them to us. So how are we going to be agents of transformation here uh, in Aldridge? I think the Lord does lead us toward that, and some of us hold back. We think we're not good at it. Uh, we think we'd much rather do practical, simple things like making tea or something. Very important. But actually, if that's a way of avoiding something, stepping out in faith, leave the tea and step out. So has the Lord been saying something to you about he wants you to become a bit of a different person so that things will change around you? So those are the two questions and we'll just have four or five minutes of quiet, and then we'll pray together. Jesus said, follow me, and become like me. Together we pray. Lord, I trust you, Help me where I find it difficult to trust. And Jesus said, wait for the power from on high and you will be my witnesses. And we pray together. Lord, with your help, I am willing to witness for you in public. Grant the power and the gifts which flow from your spirit so that your reign as king may increase amongst the communities and people I know. Amen. And let's pray for each other in the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Only in APC could this happen. John said, I've got a present to give you as a thank you present, but he's not here. So can I just say thank you for the present? And <laughs> I knocked it over as I sort of said thank you very much. <laughs>